If you'd like to turn up your Bible, we'll read our scripture passage for today. We're in James chapter 1 and we're picking up at uh, verse 9. James chapter 1. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows, He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. This is God's word. Well, last week we started a new series in the New Testament letter of James, most likely written by the younger brother of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, or I should say half-brother. This James, having grown up in the presence of Jesus, later in life committed himself to become a follower of Christ, a worshipper of Christ, and he led the Jerusalem church for some 30 years, a significant leader well known throughout early Christianity. And he writes this very unique letter. It's powerful and punchy, and it's very practical. It's concerned with how being a Christian works its way out in our everyday life and it touches on some really important issues Um, just thinking this week about chapter three where it talks about taming the tongue and my goodness there's some practical things in there perhaps it's the most practical letter in the new testament so our series title is faith that works faith that works it does stuff it's practical and it also works it's functional it's effective verses one to eight set the scene and they introduce some of the big themes And in one sentence, we we thought about that passage last week, that James is writing to you. It's to you if you're a Christian believer, because you're part of the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. James is writing to you to change your mind and to transform your character. We thought about how James uses lots of words in chapter one that are to do with knowing and thinking. And particularly starts off in verse two with this command to consider consider that means to calculate to reckon to 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 ponder and think and to consider that uh, whenever you face trials of many kinds they are pure joy James wants to change our mind and to transform our character 
And that's the purpose of his letter. So he wants to get, let us see the world through new eyes, to see even our trials and suffering and difficulties through new eyes so that we learn to be transformed by them. Now, these trials could be all sorts of things. They could be financial difficulty and hardship. It could be physical and mental illness. It could be grief, bereavement. It could be deep disappointment in life. Struggles with all sorts of things. Trials of all kinds, he says. Consider them pure joy because of what they're doing in your character. In other words, James is saying the Christian community has to change its perspective on trials. Not to simply bemoan them, resent them, suffer them, whinge about them, lose heart over them. Maybe for some lose faith over them. But no, his main point is that trials are doing you a big favour. Because such testing of your faith produces perseverance, which is worth its weight in gold. And perseverance must work its way through your system so that you may be a whole person, complete and mature, not lacking in anything. Trials are transforming our character. Now today he continues with two big warnings. Two big warnings that are two particular challenges to the life of faith. And if you've been a Christian for any time at all, I'm pretty sure you will recognise these two. They're very common traps or snares to the life of faith. And if we're going to continue to grow and mature in our walk with Jesus Christ, we must attend to these two traps or be ensnared. And the two traps are wealth and temptation. Wealth and temptation and they are powerful they are attractive and they are deeply deceptive so first of all we're going to think about the money trap and then we're going to think about the temptation trap the money trap verses 9 to 11 believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position but the rich should take pride in their humiliation suddenly James starts talking about believers who are in you know, some of them are humble, but both financially and in terms of social status, and then comparing their situation with the rich, most likely with rich Christians. And he gives advice to both groups. Now, at first sight, this looks like a bit of a, an awkward gear change in the letter. Uh, what? It's like a change of subject. Hang on, James. You were just talking about, um, you know, asking God in faith, and now you've suddenly started talking about the rich and the poor. What's going on? And then we notice that in verse 12, James continues with the subject of persevering under trial. So that shows that he's still on topic. What's the logic here about talking about wealth? It's that money is a big trap. It's one of the trials we must face. One of the biggest trials that Christians will face in their lives is to do with their circumstances, their finances, and their social status. It doesn't actually matter if you're rich or poor, money still has great power to harm you spiritually. Why is this? It's because of what money means to us. Money basically means power. Money gives us power in our lives and it, it gives us the impression that we have power in the world. After all, the richest people in the world are often the most powerful, aren't they? I looked at the Forbes list of the 10 most influential people in the world this week, 
And some of them are kind of predictable leaders, like the uh, president of China, uh, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, the pope. But there are a number of people in the top 10 most influential people in the world who are there simply because they are billionaires and they founded big companies. That, that's the only reason they got to be there. People who founded Google and Amazon and so on. Money gives you power. Money also gives us choice. If you have money, you can make choices. You can choose to do things or not do them. No money, it feels like we have no choices. So one reason why people fear poverty is that their choices were taken away. Somebody else makes choices for you. Money also promises freedom. If you've got money, you can do what you like in life without worrying about it. And isn't it nice occasionally to feel free to do things and not always have to worry about how much they cost and count the pennies? Money gives us status, gives us recognition and people admire and look up to and think well of those with money. And that's why many people are actually working hard and borrowing to the hilt to look richer than they actually are. They have a huge mortgage and their car is on uh, lease, but it, they have the image of a very successful person because money gives status. I remember sharing in this church a few years ago, a friend of mine became a chief executive of a national company, it was a surveying company, while he was still in his 30s, very talented guy. And he told me something fascinating. There was an economic downturn. The firm had to cut costs. They had to let a lot of people go. But the senior management team were told, he called them in and told them, you, you can all keep your jobs. We need you here. But we do need to cut costs somehow. So I'm going to give you a choice. You can either take a pay cut or you can have a smaller company car. What do you think they chose? Every single one of them chose the pay cut because no one can see a pay cut but they can see if you're driving a small company car there's a loss of status money gives us power to make choices to be free it gives us status recognition in the eyes of other people we become important at least that's what we think it does but actually at the deepest level money really doesn't do any of these things because money never lives up to the promises that it makes. And those who have made lots of money often testify to this. You see, if we get our identity from our wealth, then we are captive to money. We are enslaved by it. It has us in its grip. We desperately need it. We're swollen and proud when we have it and fearful and anxious when we don't. James knows that money has this distorting power to shape a Christian's identity and to control our imagination and our lifestyle choices. So he immediately addresses all kinds of Christians and he speaks quite sharply. In fact, it's almost sarcastic and it sort of takes you by surprise. So those who are in humble circumstances, he says, you, you should Take pride in your high position. When you're poor, you should celebrate. What? Why is that? Literally, he says, you should take pride in your exaltation. You should take pride in your height. And it's the same word that is used of the place that the Holy Spirit is going to be sent from. Luke 24, Jesus says to his followers, stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high exaltation 
the place where God is. It's the same word used of the place that Jesus ascended to after he rose from the dead. Ephesians 4 verse 8, when he ascended on high, he gave gifts to men. In other words, Christian believers, you belong to the heavenly realm. It's as if you're already seated there with Jesus Christ. Take pride, boast in that exaltation that you have as a follower of Jesus. You must look beyond this world's valuation of you. This world's valuation of your social status or what you earn or the kind of car you drive or your gym membership or not. All those trivial things that pass away, you must look beyond that and look to God's view of you, that God views you as sitting in his presence in the heavenly realm. You belong there. Now to the, the believers who have more, to the rich, James has quite a bit more to say. He says, okay, you've got more wealth, more possessions, perhaps you've got a nice house, social status. You know what he says to them? He says the opposite. You should take pride in your humiliation. What does he mean? He says, you will pass away like a wild flower. Now over the last few weeks, couple of months, we've seen the wild flowers come out in the city of Manchester, haven't we? And they are so beautiful, especially in a very industrial city. On our walks past Southern Cemetery, my wife and I have sometimes had our breath taken away by a host of golden daffodils or bluebells. And down Maldeth Road West uh, by Huffend Park, there's a strip of grass in the middle of a, of a dual carriageway where every year some absolutely beautiful wildflowers appear. I look forward to them. They're gorgeous. But you know what? There's one thing I know. Those flowers are here today and gone tomorrow. Their glory is just for a moment. They do not last. And wealth is just the same. You know, we're so easily seduced by the glamour and the glitz of this world's presentation of its latest wealthy celebrities. Just be honest. Do, do you ever secretly indulge in looking at the life and the beauty of those sparkling people that get put forward on social media? Do you ever find yourself privately imagining what it would be like to be one of them? an actor, a, a famous sports star, a beautiful model, an aristocrat or a royal, a billionaire. James gives you an alternate image to reflect on that's a lot more wholesome than the sidebar on the Daily Mail website. He says, focus your attention on the wild flower. Just think about it. The sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls, its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. And of course, we all know this. You've probably seen these things on the internet where they find some poor celebrity and they show a picture of how beautiful they were in their 30s and then they say, you'll never guess what they look like now as they are on in their mature years, fading away even while they go about their business. And of course, you can't take it with you. How can you tell if you're falling into the money trap, Christian friend? Here's a few diagnostic questions. 
Does money have a grip on your heart? In other words, does it make you worry? If you see your bank balance go up, you feel good and happy. If you see it go down or overdrawn, you, you literally feel, feel anxious or sad or depressed, worried. It's got a grip on you. Do, you. do you frequently talk about money? You frequently complain about it? Does money make you afraid? Or does it make you overconfident? Do you fondle your possessions? You kind of think about them and imagine them and you gain such worth from having them and shopping for them. Do you find it hard to give money away? Now, if you answered yes to any of those things, then it's quite possible that money has become part of your identity. And friends, we have, you're, you're in good company. Everybody struggles with this. We have to train ourselves to see through it. And that means learning to look at the world through different eyes, to see the world as inside out and upside down, that the way up is the way down and that the greatest of all is the servant of all. You know, Jesus' teaching of the upside down kingdom, which he constantly taught, that the way to be really rich is to be poor in spirit. Christian friends, don't allow your imagination to be drawn into the money trap. Learn to see things as God sees them. And to do that, we will need tr constant training in our mind and heart in God's word, which teaches us to see through these things. And we need each other because like everything else in the Christian life, this is a community project. The money trap. Now, in particular, James wants us to recognise something else. And that is what is happening when you are tempted. And that leads us to our second point, the temptation trap. Look at verses 13 to 16. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Now, the word temptation has been quite trivialised in our culture and robbed of its power. When you think of temptation, you're probably more likely to think about chocolates, ice creams, luxury goods colourful lingerie and expensive treats. Everybody knows the Oscar Wilde quote, I can resist anything except temptation. Ho, ho. But in the world of the Bible, temptation is toxic. It is absolutely dangerous and destructive. And it is debilitating to human life and flourishing. Yet we face it all the time. James warns us, not to imagine or be taken into thinking that God is somehow responsible for tempting us. Now, what is temptation? It is a, an impulse to sin. Just an impulse. It's not a sin itself, but it's an impulse to sin. And although God does test us, James uh, 1 verse 2 has already told us that, God does permit or he deliberately causes some trials to enter our lives. He never tempts us to sin. This is because God is not himself susceptible to any such desire for evil and he can't desire that human beings would commit evil acts. Now, when we are tempted, we might be inclined to think, well, how can I resist? Because, you know, God came from God in the first place. But that is unthinkable to James. And frankly, it is an excuse 
And it's a loophole to imagine that we are somehow innocent victims of a temptation that's come from outside of us. Jesus himself taught that temptation comes from within, from our hearts. Jesus taught that our hearts are by nature evil, inclined to sin, crooked in their desires and aspirations. None of us starts off in life with a completely pure set of internal hopes and fears and ambitions and impulses. And so if our culture is telling us all the time, you just have to be true to yourself, then that is the worst lie in human history. Because if you're just true to yourself, you will end up in a complete mess. James is challenging us to take the self that we find within and choose wisely which desires we are going to encourage and follow and which desires we are going to resist or uproot. And he does this with another powerful image. Remember, the first powerful image was the wildflower. This next powerful image is the family tree of sin. I mean, this is just a really extraordinary bit of scripture. Just read, read, read this in verse 15. After desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. It's quite a gruesome image. It's an image of a, of a really ugly family tree. He says, you know, desire, sinful desire, is like a woman who conceives a child. And when the child is born, it is sin. And sin is any act which pulls us away from the good life, the genuine life, the life of love that God sets before us in the Bible. And when this child's sin grows up and becomes mature, it's given growth and opportunities in our life, it also has a child. And what does sin give birth to? Death. See, sin leads to death. Surely as night follows day. In other words, the final result of following those desires that go against God's wishes for human life is death and death is multifaceted in the bible it doesn't just mean that point in life where your heart stops beating and your body begins to decay death is something that that comes through the whole of life it's it's the agony of experiences where life is being extinguished a number of years ago a friend of mine who's a pastor called steve steve whitmer wrote a blog. I've not been able to find the blog and I wish I could because it was so powerful but I'm going to share, share the idea with you and, and hopefully I can find it another time. Steve wrote this blog and he said I just want to carry out a thought experiment. What if I committed adultery? Just a one time, a one night stand, a beautiful woman somehow came into my life and I, I committed adultery. What would happen if I followed that desire and it gave birth to that sin? What would be the outcome? And he listed a, a series of events, almost like a chain reaction of what would happen. The, the impact it would, the devastating impact it would have on his wife, who he absolutely loves and cherishes. But the fact that he had gone against their wedding vows and betrayed her at the most fundamental level. She would feel violated and hurt, hurt and deeply wounded. And it would, the trust in their marriage would never be the same again if the marriage continued. He's a father as well. What would his children think? 
that would be an impact in the home, wouldn't it? Even if this truth was kept from the children, somehow it would impact them. And if they began to know, well, they found out in later life, how would it impact the children? If it led to a broken home, what would the impact be in those children's lives for years and years and years? He's a pastor. What would be the impact on his congregation, his flock, the people who he leads as a shepherd, someone who ought to set an example? How would it hurt the flock? What would the impact be in the wider community as people found out that the pastor, this man who's supposed to be the servant of Christ, had cheated on his wife? What would people think of the Christian church, of the gospel? How does it reflect on Jesus? And so on and so forth. You see, we can do this thought experiment with anything that we're particularly tempted to and realise that the outcome of it, which looks so attractive at the start, the outcome of it is actually deadly. It's death. James says, don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters, because we're so easily deceived. We're taken in by sin. It looks so attractive. We have almost like a voice whispering in our ear, you know, a little bit of this won't do you any harm. It's just fun. But the outcome of it, desire, gives birth to sin and sin when it's full grown leads to death. And that is true of any sin that you can imagine. Wow. We're getting into some deep spiritual matters here. And we're only in the first part of the letter. So James is telling us, consider it pure joy when you uh, face trials of many kinds. But bear in mind that the money trap is a significant one that can throw you off course and reflect on the nature of temptation itself because temptation comes with every trial. That's the link. Every trial that we face, any trial that you think about, carries within it the seed of a temptation to disobey God. If your trial is financial, the seed of the temptation is to do something dishonest, to fiddle your tax return to help yourself to something, to perhaps to steal, to uh, withhold some money that you ought to have given to someone else. There are all sorts of ways that we're tempted when we're facing a financial trial. Uh, you, you can multiply this across all sorts of levels, but within every trial that you face is a temptation. You need to see it for what it is, see through it, so that you can live the life of faith. Thirdly, finally, we're turning to the positive here which is what James holds before us, and it's absolutely beautiful, the gift of God. The gift of God. Let's look back at verse 12. James pronounces something blessed. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. The image of this crown is probably not the, the idea that we have of a crown, you know, a, a kind of gold metal band with um, bits sticking up and jewels on it. It's probably more like the crown that was given to the triumphant athletes who'd competed in the games in the Greek world and they'd won the race and they're presented with a laurel wreath as the victor. Paul uses the same image in 1 Corinthians and it's this, those who persevere and run the race in faith will become victors, champions, and receive the crown of life from the Lord himself. He's made a promise that if you persevere and continue with him through the ups and downs of life, when you finally come into his presence, he will say, 
well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your eternal rest and set a crown of life upon your head. The Christian hope isn't hope of a disembodied future, living on a cloud somewhere, playing a harp with the other cherubs. The Christian hope is of life without end in a renewed creation, in a glorious version of the body that you have. And the best thing about that creation is that you will be with Jesus, the lover of your soul, the one who gave himself for you, the one who called you to himself, the one who keeps you, the one who knows you and loves you, who rejoices over you with singing. If you persevere, James says, you'll be blessed. And this word means a lot more than just happy. It means to receive the favour and the rich life of wholeness and completeness that God alone can bestow. There are some statements of blessing in the Bible quite well known. Psalm 1, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or sit in the, stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. Blessed is the person who does this. Jesus himself taught blessings. Matthew chapter 5, we call them the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who are persecuted. These are blessing statements. And here James says, if you persevere under trial, you join the company of the blessed with the life eternal and as a victor you come into the presence of God and he contrasts the stuff that the world promises with its uh, trivial and shallow images of money and wealth or its seductive but false images of temptation and sin with the really solid good gifts that come from God himself and this is where we finish in verse 17 every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. James here reaches back into the Old Testament again with this image of the first fruits. The harvest festival at the temple was one of the happy times of the year. The farmers had uh, prepared their fields and, and, and sown their crops and, 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 and waited anxiously for the, for the rains to come. And when it came and the crops began, the first fruits, the first part of the crops that were brought into the barn, they would take to the temple and they would offer to God as a thanksgiving, as a celebration. The harvest has come. Lord, we give you praise and we offer to you the first, confident that you will provide a great harvest to come in the future and what James is saying to us Christian friends is this God gave us birth new birth spiritual birth through his word the word of truth and that we are a kind of first fruits of all he created if you're a Christian you're part of the first fruits that Jesus Christ is bringing to the temple and one of a, a project we might say a task to change the world, to change the cosmos, to create a people that no one could number. 
more numerous than the sand on the shore or stars in the sky. You're part of this vast crowd of people who will live in the renewed creation. And God chose you to give you new birth, to be part of that. And so your choices to resist the money trap and the temptation trap aren't just about your relationship to Jesus, but about your taking part in this new world to come, the world of fullness, goodness, holiness and life. Don't be deceived, brothers and sisters. Let's take pride in our high position and resist temptation. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this strange, powerful wisdom which we are receiving from your half-brother, James. Help us, we pray. We're, we're so weak. We lack faith. We need you. We can't do it alone. We need each other. We ask that you would create in us that new birth. And give us the will and the desire to pursue Christ wholeheartedly in our day and generation. Amen.